Hello and welcome to Under the Wig. My name is Marnie McKenna. And I'm Ellie Smith. Our episode today is brought to you by MSLS and the College of Law. The College of Law offers the largest range of flexible, practical legal training programs in Western Australia. With online part-time and full-time study options and more than 10 start dates, you can fit PLT around your schedule. Google this College of Law to learn more. This week, we're talking to the Honourable Michael Kirby, an academic and a former Justice of the High Court. Thank you for being with us today, Michael. Thank you for having me. Uh, we wanted to start off by asking you what drew you to studying law. Well, at school, I was good at um, subjects which seemed suitable for law. I was very good at history, uh, very good in English. Uh, I liked acting on the stage, uh, and I also was very good at debating. I went to a school in Sydney, it's a, a selective public high school, and my entire education was in public schools. But at Fort Street High School, we had a long tradition of connection with the law, and um, and therefore it was a sort of natural thing for me to do, and I did it, and I've never regretted it. The law is a great occupation, and I've had a, a great time. Amazing. Um, over the course of your studies leading up to your career, were there any common myths you had heard about studying law that after such a long career you now know are false? If that is a question as to whether I expected that I would still be going strong at 82 in the study and profession of the law, um, the answer would be no. I, I didn't expect that it would go on so long. But law is not a job for those who want to just dabble. I don't think you can really be a successful lawyer without giving your all. And therefore, it's, uh, you've got to go to the law with your eyes wide open as to its opportunities, as to its challenges, and as to the problems that a life in the law presents. Yeah, that sounds great. What are some of your fond memories of your time on the High Court? I loved Canberra and my partner, Johan, loved Canberra. We liked it there. Uh, every fortnight when we went down there, it was like a mini holiday for us. Um, most of the other justices hated Canberra. Uh, and I think that was because in the design of the building, their chambers mostly faced the airport, which was where they all longed to be. But my chambers faced the old Parliament House, and therefore I liked the place. I loved the beauty of Canberra, and I therefore found that the work, which of course is at the highest level of the Australian legal and judicial system, was very challenging and every day was interesting. There were, of course, some days which were not so good, but we were all professionals. We all did our job, and my partner came more to Canberra than the other partners, and I think that was another reason why I was always in a happy mood. In regards to those cases that you were working on, are there any in particular that you really enjoyed or that you were more passionate about than others? 
Now, passion is a word I would keep a check on because mm -hmm. I don't think you can be passionate to the extent that it blots out your duty to the law and to a logical and rational reasoning and doing your job as a professional, as I always tried to do. There were various themes in my time as a Justice of the High Court. They included the theme of the importance of international law, particularly international human rights law. And therefore, when I had a case where that was involved, that made the case interesting for me. So a case like Al-Khateb against Godwin, which was a case where Justice McHugh and I had a bit of a barney over whether international law could be taken into account in interpreting the Australian Constitution, was an interesting case. Was I passionate about it? Well, I'm not sure that that would be the adjective I would apply to it. I was interested, concerned and supportive when I first arrived at the High Court, Justice McHugh, who had been a good friend of mine on the Court of Appeal of New South Wales, he said, there's one thing you've got to know about this place. And he said, four. You've got to know the number four. And I knew that uh, theoretically, but I had this presented to me in a very rude and direct way. The High Court of Australia is a court of seven justices, and therefore we live by the rule of four. Across your career, have you faced any significant challenges that have arisen while working on the High Court or with the UN or any other projects that you've had the opportunity to be a part of? Well, the challenges include that judges... Um, super intelligent and therefore there has to be respect even when one disagrees. The Court of Appeal of New South Wales, which was the first full-time state appellate court, was copying the High Court at that time under Sir Garfield Barwick and with Justices Taylor and Kitto. It was not a pleasant place for barristers to appear in. And I was determined to change that. And I had to work out how to do this with these judges, all of whom were older than I was and who were very experienced, very talented and opinionated. I instituted bi-weekly meetings around my big desk in my chambers and I served excellent coffee and raisin toast. And the raisin toast was slathered with butter. <laughs> now, all of this was very bad for their health, but everybody enjoyed it. And that contributed to people talking about their cases, talking about why they were slow in getting a decision out and why they disagreed with this or that. And I think that was very beneficial to the smooth running of the court. Across a lot of those cases you've just mentioned, a lot of them were quite high profile. Was there ever a challenge handling those sorts of cases with such a high public interest? Well, it's true that the very nature of the High Court of Australia is that it is political. It's part of the politics of the nation. And so we had very important and controversial matters relating to the issue of the so-called work choices case. So that was quite a challenging issue. And there was a, a difference of view. 
often I was commonly in a minority, and that was because judges were appointed who were uh, more conservative in their approaches to law than I was. If I had agreed, nothing is easier. What you do if somebody sends around a decision and the reasons and you agree, presto. All you have to do is send around a piece of paper saying, Kirby J, I agree with the reasons of X. And that's it. Get on with something else. Maybe go to the theatre or a concert <laughs> or a nice dinner uh, with my partner. I mean, there are lots of motivations to try to agree. I'm interested to hear that you study what I wrote because by the rule of four, what I wrote was not part of the rule that is binding. And so presumably your teachers are teaching you by reference to minority opinions, including some of my own. So I'm not particularly proud of the fact that I was dissenting. I would rather have been in the majority, but that was my duty. If I didn't agree, my duty was to express what I sincerely felt, and then uh, it's up to the future to decide whether that had some germ of truth that will influence future decisions. I think you're exactly right when you say that our lecturers often study your judgments to identify to us that, yeah, law is so ambiguous. And although the majority have decided on one thing, often it's so uh, not clear cut at all and, and very thin line of where the law is drawn. Well, I may be peculiar and I probably am a bit peculiar, but I think legal interpretation is actually a very interesting thing. You have obviously been a part of many courts and tribunals and projects with the UN. Was there anything in particular, um, any of those roles that you have particularly enjoyed the most? One was a commission on HIV and the law because I've had a long involvement in the United Nations strategies to deal with the HIV epidemic. One was the Commission of Inquiry on North Korea, which was set up by the Human Rights Council of the United Nations, and I had the honour to chair that Commission of Inquiry, which has been influential and is still influential because it gave a rare insight to the international community into what is going on in North Korea, and it's pretty horrible. But most recently, I've been serving on the Human Rights Institute of the International Bar Association. It's not a formal tribunal of the United Nations or of the world community or of a nation state, but it still is the same old work of trying to find where truth lies and what rational and civilized people applying the global uh, rules of human rights have to say about it. And sometimes it can be influential. In Malawi, the president had an election. And unfortunately, those who were supporting him used Tipex, the whitener, to change ballot papers. And the changes influenced the outcome. And the wonderful judges of Malawi in the Supreme Court unanimously said this election was not free and fair and has to be set aside and there has to be a new election. 
And the president then started to prevaricate. And at that stage, the International Bar Association intervened and it made statements. It organized bodies to support the judges and called on the government not to interfere in the independent determination of the matters by the judiciary of Malawi. And eventually, the president, because of the global outcry of the TIPEX, but the bottom line is that the election was reconducted as the Court of Appeal held, and uh, the president was ousted, and the new president came into power. So sometimes even civil society organizations can influence the operation of international human rights law is slowly but surely seeping into the decision and lawyers and judges have an important part to play in this. So we should remain optimistic and we should remain engaged with these issues. Yeah, of course. Now, there was a case in the High Court called, um, I think it's M against the Minister for Immigration. It was a case about two boys who were Hazara from Afghanistan. And they had come to Australia with their parents without uh, visas. And so the parents and the children were put in detention in Adelaide. But a group of um, Christian people in Adelaide uh, went to the family court and said they should be, the children should be released because they had nothing to do with the default of not getting a visa. They wouldn't know what a visa is. They were six and four. And therefore, they said, we will put them in the local public schools. We'll give them foster home and uh, let the case go on, but they shouldn't be there. But the Commonwealth said uh, the Act says any person who doesn't have a visa, who arrives in Australia without a visa, will go into detention. And uh, they are persons. And the argument was advanced, no, they're not persons for the purposes of the Act because um, you will read person down to be only applicable to an adult person because that is uh, what you can expect to, to get a visa. Uh, but there was two icebergs floating about in the water. One of them was the Attorney General's Department had already warned Parliament that the Convention on the Rights of the Child stated that detention of a child must be a last resort. And this had been drawn to the notice of the minister. And the minister said, uh, we're not concerned about that. We're concerned to protect the Australian populace and uh, we will go ahead. The other difficulty was that the statute, the Act, the Migration Act, had provisions for the searching of children in detention. And that was difficult or impossible to reconcile with an argument that children were not kept in detention because they were not persons for the purposes of the Act. 
And so in the end, although my sympathies were entirely with what these good people of Adelaide had done, uh, I could not go along with the uh, uh, reasoning of the majority of the family court. And I therefore joined a unanimous decision of the High Court in striking down the decisions below and ordering that the children be taken from the homes of the foster parents and put back into the detention, which happened. And then they were returned to Afghanistan. So that is an example of how in judging, you sometimes have very painful decisions to make. For me, I don't know how you would feel about it, I found that a very painful decision. But this is an indication, if you can focus the lawyers on what you see as their problem or the problem of their client, then the argument can become sharp and focused and that can help you as the judge to come to the conclusion uh, in the case. Along the similar path of that particular case, in your personal opinion, what role should courts play, if any, in playing a part in how law um, adapts to political and social, I guess, context and how it evolves? Well, in the last uh, century, uh, I think we all realised the importance of context. Uh, The context is critical to the interpretation of a constitution or an act of parliament or a will or a a contract, Uh, taking words in isolation is, is going to lead you into problems and into mistakes. So context is really uh, very important. And um, I think context is therefore extremely uh, important in understanding the problem that is presented by a case and uh, answering that problem as best you can. It's true that uh, sometimes the law doesn't permit you to reach what you think yourself is the is a just outcome in the case. If I had been sitting under a palm tree dispensing palm tree justice, then I would have left the little children in the case I mentioned. The case is B, capital B, against the Minister for Immigration. And it's in about uh, 2005. I would have left the children with the foster parents in Adelaide. But you have to take into account the context and you therefore have to take into account the political context that led to such a provision in our law. And there are a lot of provisions in the law that a judge may not particularly like, but that is just the duty of the judge then to give effect uh, to the outcome that is most consistent with the judge's notion of justice and with the meaning of the uh, particular law in question as it applies in the context. But that still leaves quite a lot of leeway for choice. And uh, that leeway and the just and 
rational and uh, human rights respecting solutions is the is the great challenge of the legal profession and the judiciary and it's not just the judges lawyers have got to feed things up lawyers have got to present ways of solving cases some lawyers in malawi must have got a brief together and got their case and thought well we we will feed this up to the judges if lawyers don't feed it up then the judges never don't get a chance because under our system the judge can't invent the case the judge has to wait until a lawyer uh, with a client who has the right to do so raising the issue and then arguing in the best possible way i had been the chairman of the law reform commission the australian law reform commission and that involved me in a lot of activities relevant to uh, medico legal questions i worked very closely with the law reform commission of western australia at that time and it was a golden era of law reform and law reform commissions one of the tasks we had was a report on human tissue transplantation which uh, had been raised because scientists clever scientists found a way to overcome the body's rejection of human tissues transferred from one human being to another and that then presented all sorts of uh, interesting problems so i had got involved in that medico legal work and then uh, in the 1980s uh, a strange new virus um, emerged and it emerged mainly uh, in the first instance amongst young gay men in uh, San Francisco and in the United States and it was identified by the Centers for Disease Control and one of the young experts in that center was Dr. Tony Fauci who later became President Trump's advisor for the NIH on the new pandemic which was the covid-19 pandemic and um so uh the matter went to the world health organization um it was a tricky issue as covid-19 has been but in australia we had basically followed new zealand in taking the view that the best solution was to inform the at risk groups and we succeeded in australia in reducing the levels of infection because we did those things It was one of those rare moments when our politicians agreed and the labor party was in federal government under the hawke government and dr neil bluett was the health minister and the coalition party which was then being led by john howard but the health spokesman was professor peter bohm who was a professor of public health so everybody said we've got to look at new zealand and follow what they're doing there and we did and then uh, the head of the world uh, project on aids was dr jonathan man and he had come out to australia 
and had met me and he thought, we've got to get this noisy judge from Australia to come along uh, and tell us what the law has to do about this. And so I got involved in, in doing that. And I think that was beneficial and it got the UN to adopt the New Zealand solution. And of course, that caused lots of problems because many of the countries hated gays and hated sex workers and, and disrespected transgender people and, and uh, people who used drugs. And so it was difficult. Jonathan Mann was a very great international civil servant. He helped set up the Global Commission on AIDS. I was appointed to it. I was sitting there with the top scientists of the world working on HIV. One of them later got a Nobel Prize for finding the virus, Professor Luc Montigny of France. Uh, and the other, uh, Dr. Robert Gallo from the United States, um, won many prizes because he discovered the tests that could identify whether a person had been exposed to HIV or not. Uh, and so that was a very interesting, a very important, but it was a very hard time because um, uh, many of the friends of my partner, Johan, and me were young gay men and many of them got HIV and many of them died because this was before the antiretrovirals and it was a very stressful time. It was stressful for poor Dr. Fauci, but it became um, a place where we all learned lessons about talking with the community about a pandemic. And we'd, we've done that in Australia with the COVID-19. Uh, and we mustn't think that's the last pandemic. There are going to be future pandemics and uh, we're still learning how to handle them. But uh, that was a very interesting uh, and practical and useful uh, engagement with WHO and uh, the global community dealing with an epidemic. I guess working on these uh, cases and tribunals and particularly the UN um, projects that you were talking about with North Korea, you must have faced some really confronting scenes and, and situations. How did you work through those without letting it affect your personal life out of work hours? First of all, I've never had a trouble sleeping. I work very long hours. I always have. The New South Wales Bar has a tradition of starting very early, be warned. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, often I would be working with a silk when I was a young lawyer like yourselves. And they would say, well, I'll see you in chambers tomorrow morning, 5 a.m. Don't be late. And that was just how it was. And it's still that way in Sydney. It's early. Melbourne is later. Melbourne bar works late at night, the Sydney bar goes home at seven o'clock. So they've got to be in at five o'clock. And um, so um, that that is just a routine of life I, I've got into. And um, because I'm generally tired by the end of the day, 
I just can go to sleep very easily. I think it must be very hard on people and including lawyers uh, who can't go to sleep easily. Uh, I think somehow you've got to get a way to um, have a good, uh, refreshing sleep uh, and uh, that helps you overcome the stresses of the day. Also, professionalism helps you because you know in your mind that you can't change everything and you can't, in a multi-member court, you can't insist that your colleagues agree with you. You've got to respect their right to have a different point of view. And so if you know the rules and you know how the system works, then you do your very best uh, conscientiously you get on top of the case uh, as well as you can. And I knew myself that working very, very hard and getting on top of the case was the way most cases are won. Did you have any final piece of advice for students that are studying law now um, who study your cases and look up to you massively well, um, my my advice to them is the same as Justice McHugh's advice to me. Four, you've got to know, and you've got to know how to analyse the case, uh, because it's not anything that the judges in the majority write that becomes a binding rule of the case. It's only if the rule involved is one that is essential to the decision in the case and to the order that is made by the court at the end of the case. Uh, and therefore, good legal knowledge and analysis of the case uh, can help to narrow what the case stands for and can maybe sometimes leave open uh, opportunities for arguing with notwithstanding the four, uh, it is still open to decide this or that in the determination of the case. Uh, I know it sounds very trite, but my most important uh, advice is to really work hard for your client because the client really admires you and depends on you. I used to see young barristers when I was a young barrister joking and laughing and uh, cavorting verbally uh, about case gossip and all the other things. That's all very well if you're on your own. But if clients are around, they expect you to be devoted they expect you to be really serious about their problem and they expect you, you can have a sense of humour, but a day in court is not a fun day for a client. It's an extremely stressful day. And uh, I hope that the old traditions of bullying lawyers and in particular sometimes women lawyers is not happening now to the extent that it sometimes did when I was young. So the main rules are, one, get in very early, 5 a.m., or if not, 6 a.m. if you're going to have a good sleep in. Uh, and two, read everything that you can about the case and the law 
relevant to the case and especially the uh, arguments and submissions of the parties so that you're on top of it. That's the best way to present the case fairly. Thirdly, to remember that for most of your clients throughout your life, you will be possibly the only advocate, barrister, solicitor that they'll ever have, possibly the only law case they'll ever have in a court. And therefore, when you have long forgotten the case, they will be sitting at the table with their children and they will say, Mr. Kirby, my barrister, he said, and some forgotten, trite and trivial thing that you said will be chucked back at those poor children because uh, for them, the, the, the lawyer is a very special person with a very special responsibility. And remain optimistic about the law and don't be a pure formalist. Don't just decide the case uh, the easy way out. I could sit down now and I could write the dissenting opinion in the Marbo case very easy, but lawyers have the privilege of making choices and just decisions. And it isn't always easy, as the case of the uh, Afghani children demonstrates. And sometimes you can't do it because the iceberg is in the way. But at other times, there is a leeway uh, for choice to provide the just solution. And when that happens, that is what the lawyer has to do. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Kirby, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to interview you and speak to you and pick your brain about all your career and knowledge that we look up to. So thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Ellie, and thank you, Marnie, and thank you and respects to the Murdoch Law Student Society. And I hope that now that COVID-19, we hope, is beginning to recede in Australia, I will have a chance to come to Murdoch again and to meet the faculty and to meet the students. I'm missing Murdoch and I hope that the chance will happen pretty soon. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye.